I'm Jason Mitchell, co-head of Responsible Investment at Man Group. You're listening to A Sustainable Future, a podcast about what we're doing today to build a more sustainable world tomorrow. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast, and I hope everyone is staying safe and well. Anyone that's listened enough to this podcast is sure to pick up on a few of my influences. Among them, Paul Pullman is certainly a prominent one. So this is a discussion I've wanted to have for a very, very long time. Why? Because almost a decade ago this month, Unilever, under Paul's watch, announced its first sustainable living plan. And as a portfolio manager back then, I distinctly remember feeling gobsmacked at its language, ambitions, targets, and commitment. But I credit them for normalizing the idea that companies can actually decouple their growth from their environmental impact while also increasing their social impact. And it's a theme that's carried over into many of my other podcast episodes, like that of IKEA and Maersk. And you could say that it's taken a decade for companies, if not capital markets, to catch up to this vision, which is why it's such a privilege to have my next guest, Paul Pullman, on the show. We talk about what differentiates strong companies from weak companies, how the multi-stakeholder model is driving a rethink of traditional shareholder centrism, and why strong leadership is vital, not only in steering through the current crisis, but also long-term sustainability issues like climate change. We also discuss the tension between the purpose movement and the shareholder movement, between corporates and activists, and between long-termism and short-termism. Paul is co-founder and chair of Imagine, a social venture which mobilizes business leaders around tackling climate change and global inequality. Paul is the honorary chair of the International Chamber of Commerce, chair of the B-Team and Saeed Business School, and vice chair of the UN Global Compact. A leading proponent that business should be a force for good, he's been described by the Financial Times as a standout CEO of the past decade. As CEO of Unilever from 2009 to 2019, he demonstrated that a long-term multi-stakeholder model goes hand-in-hand hand with excellent financial performance. Paul was a member of the UN Secretary General's high-level panel, which developed the Sustainable Development Goals, and as an active SDG advocate, he continues to work with global organizations and across industry to push the 2030 development agenda. Welcome to the podcast, Paul Pullman. It's great to have you here. Oh, thanks so much for... Uh, Thank you, Jason. Yeah. Appreciate it. No, I, I'm looking forward to it. So there's a lot to ask here, but I want to jump in given the urgency of the current pandemic and then backtrack to some wider questions after this. So, but first, I'm curious, how do you think about the collective response by corporates to this pandemic crisis that we're facing right now. And from the work that you're doing at Imagine, how do you think about what the right and response is from corporates? Well, thanks for the opportunity. I mean, it's probably good to point out that uh, before we had COVID, things weren't working either. We had a climate change that was on the trajectory to three de degrees plus in warming. We had inequality that would uh, that was actually increasing. Uh, gender equality would have taken us 257 years to solve. So the system wasn't in very good shape before COVID. And then COVID came, and it probably brought a few things to our attention. The first one is that we cannot have healthy people in an unhealthy planet. And people started to understand the relationships that you see between biodiversity, climate, human health, now a racial dimension in the economy. The second thing is actually that people started to realize that companies that were performing under a multi-stakeholder longer-term model, or as you might call ESG, environmental, social, and governance, have done better during this crisis and actually are in a better position to come out. And that is also true for the increasingly for the financial side funds, that have ESG invested have performed better than others. And then lastly, I think COVID has shown that we are able to take fast actions. And this is really what you see coming to your question, that in a relatively short period of time, I think something is happening in the corporate world. Whilst the governmental situations that we have and global governance is probably at an all-time low, we've actually seen many of the businesses rally to ensure that we come out better than when we went into COVID. And uh, at this stage, I would say 
most of their energy has gone to saving lives and protecting livelihoods. But increasingly, business at large is calling for building back better, but also putting themselves on the line by making bigger commitments. I could not have imagined even a year ago the platitude of, of commitments that are coming in from the private sector at the scale that they're doing. Many around climate change, not surprisingly, but increasingly also around biodiversity. And then increasingly the social side of ESG because of issues like Black Lives Matter and, and the understanding that this is a another example of injustice where the people that are marginalized in society seem to continue to pay the price. And uh, so this social aspect is coming up as well. So all in all, I would say we're moving in the right direction. We were already, but we certainly have accelerated. But still, uh, two issues, I would say. Uh, the first one is we're not moving at the speed and scale that is really needed. And that's an important thing. And secondly, we need to get the governments on board as well, because ultimately, we will not get to these broader systems changes if we don't work it in this partnership with uh, the private sector and the public sector. It's just too important. And right now we have in many countries a public sector, actually, that is increasingly short-term political and actually working against some of these transformations. And then as far as business is concerned, you know, there's a lot of commitments that have been made. The public at large expects the private sector to take this leading role. Many CEOs understand that. Only 7% of CEOs believe that their loyalty should be to the shareholders alone and the others do believe in that broader responsibility and that multi-stakeholder model. But there is a gap between the say and the do that needs to be filled. And we'll undoubtedly talk about that because that gets to some of the challenges, not in terms of what you want to do, but how you're actually starting to implement it. What do you think the enduring effects of the pandemic might be for businesses going forward. Effects that, unfortunately, as you mentioned, weren't really that evident on a broader basis, given sort of the, the risk around climate change. Yeah. Well, sorry, unpredictable this future, because we're living in a much more volatile time, but we can make at least some conclusions uh, coming out of this. Is The first one is that the relationship with the market and the state will, uh, will change. Governments have spent $12 trillion dollars uh, just to stabilize the economies. I'll talk about later how much more they have to spend. But it will be a different relationship between governments and the private sector. You're starting to see that happen in many markets. Some of the bailouts have become conditional. So the uh, the state has taken a, a higher interest, if you want to, in the private sector. The other one is that we will see a rebalancing between this hyper-globalization trend that we might have been on and probably national authority, and you start to see some of that happening. And then we, in all realisticness, the ambitions for uh, economic growth need to be slowed down and need to be seen realistically. The ILO estimates that over 500 million equivalent job hours have been lost as a result of COVID. Uh, The World Bank just came out this week that over 100 million people more have been put uh, into poverty. The main thing that we need to focus on now is job creation, which, as you can understand, disproportionately affects the young, but also women and, you know, racial divide and disability. These people are more than their fair share of of being affected by this. So we do need to create jobs. Now, it happens to be that most of the investments we can make to also create a greener, more sustainable and more equitable future are actually better returns on investment, also better job creation opportunities, and obviously more resilient uh, jobs. So restoring our biodiversity, uh, rethinking about cities and making uh, greening cities, moving to uh, electric mobility, retrofitting buildings, accelerating investments in R&D and education. These are the type of things that we now need to uh, focus on and steer our governments towards. We missed a big opportunity during the financial crisis in 2007-2008 when only 2.5% of our spendings that we put in the global economies went to greening these economies. Most of it went to the banking sector and people rightfully felt that banks were too big to fail and people were too small to matter. We saw climate change going up. We saw inequality going up. 
it resulted in dissatisfaction at the polls, the Brexits, the US elections, and in other places around the world. And it has brought us to COVID. And now we're discovering that for the lack of action, we are incurring costs that are significantly higher than what it would take us to attack these issues in the first place. So if we can get these governments now to work a little bit better together, to uh, put the incremental funding that is now needed to create these jobs behind greening our economies, uh, and if we can do that in partnership with the uh, private sector, I believe we can create the needed tipping points. The other area that will help us, I think, is that you see an acceleration by our standard setters to attack an issue that always got in the way, that is, how do we measure this environmental and social capital and how do we judge uh, and, and, and look at one company versus another and the materiality and all this. And yeah. increasingly, I think we're getting more clarity around that. The work on the task force of financial disclosure uh, on climate has, has set an example, but increasingly we're able to look at these other measures to start um, hopefully increasingly changing the incentive system of what counts. If we only measure financial capital, we're not going to solve this. It actually only brought us this far and, and gave us all these challenges. But if we can also rapidly move to measuring financial, uh, next to financial, economic and social capital, I think we have a good shot to start to uh, shift this uh, this form of capitalism and make it more inclusive and sustainable. Got it. So I want to come back to some of the points that, that you mentioned, particularly around sort of commitments and the value of commitments from corporates around these issues in the shareholder versus stakeholder model. I want to sort of backtrack a little bit because I'm incredibly curious about how you either professionally or personally, both kind of went through this process of becoming more aware of the importance of this. You know, we, we've talked about how the pandemic has, in a way that climate change unfortunately hasn't, but it, how it's activated debates and animated discussions and driven a, a high degree of urgency. But when you look back, given your experience and leadership across some of the largest global consumer and fast-moving consumer brands around the world, what was the genesis for that? Because I sort of, when I look back, I see the Unilever Sustainable Living Plan back in 2010. You had just gone to Unilever in 2009, and that seemed very quick to sort of launch this ambitious plan. But the seeds of the ideas around all of that, how did that happen? Were they sort of growing well before that? How did you come to kind of fully appreciate the, you know, the importance of all this and start to put it together more formally? Well, to some extent, I believe that uh, democracy and capitalism have more or less the same fundamental flaws that they both encourage this short-term leadership. And you've seen it in politics, you've seen it in business. Now, I can't see this changing in politics anytime soon. And that was very transparent already during the financial crisis. So how do you get these leaders to think beyond the next election cycle will not happen. And as a result, we're actually not addressing some of these issues. But I do see hope in business because ultimately it's in the CEO's interest to think beyond the next quarter. Uh, even if it's against conventional wisdom, I think we've proven at Unilever and more businesses now are starting to understand that, that a longer-term multi-stakeholder model is ultimately also better for the shareholder. And the longer we wait, or we have waited, actually the more attractive that becomes. The cost of uh, inaction now in all of these sustainable development goals is higher than the cost of action, which also would say it's a very attractive proposition for the shareholders longer term. When I started 12 years ago, I inherited a company coming in as a CEO from the outside that was also not in good shape. We had seen our turnover drastically decline. Our share price had not moved in 10 years. And the company also had resorted back to uh, short-termism, managing the quarters, cutting costs or investments that we knew would be good for the longer term but would put uh, short-term profit margins at risk. And um, knowingly or unknowingly, we were basically starving the company and it wouldn't have been around now if that trend would have continued. So I went back to the history of the company when Lord Lieber started that. He had this concept of uh, making prosperity commonplace. He believed in uh, shared value creation. Uh, he called it making hygiene commonplace because he was in the bar soap business. But he was very much a uh, man driven by a purpose and values and not driven, as you can imagine, by a shareholder. In fact, an interesting man who always spent the money before he had it and introduced pensions in the UK, guaranteed six-day work weeks, 
in World War One had the highest number of volunteers because he guaranteed uh, jobs and kept paying the families. So he was an exceptional man for that time that believed in the shared prosperity concept. And over time, we've done some good things, but it was in the CSR space, like many other companies. But increasingly, we also became more shareholder focused uh, at the expense, actually, of the long-term viability of the company. And that is a story that is probably the case for the majority of companies in the world. Since I was born until now, we've seen the average public length of a company go down from 67 years to 17 years. So uh, the number of publicly traded companies in the U.S. over the last 40 years has dropped from over 8,000 to 4,000. So we are running these companies as we are running them, you know, to uh, running them in the ground or to sell, not to last. And as I had to build this company back and get the growth back, my first priority was very simple, create the space and the longer-term model to do the right thing, which ultimately is why we're here, which is to serve society. Uh, Colin Meyer in his book, Prosperity, talks about purpose, and he defines purpose as to profitably address the issues of people and planet. So I figured for a long time already that if we could define a business model that would be a positive contributor to the planet, addressing these issues that were out there, which were actually at the origin of most of the products that we were selling, then we not only would get a validity to be around for the longer term, but also tap into an enormous opportunity for growth. So next to the moral reasons for that, which you can all understand, uh, but difficult sometimes to explain to your shareholders, there's also an enormous financial reason for that. So when I announced it, unfortunately, I didn't have the benefit of the plentitude of data that is now available, and the company wasn't performing well. So there was a worry that by stopping quarterly reporting, by not giving guidance, by moving compensation systems to the longer term, and there was a worry in the financial market that more bad news was coming, and we didn't simply didn't have at that time the confidence and the trust. And they felt that uh, a distraction by focusing also on the environmental and the social aspects would go at the expense of the shareholders. So we saw our share price drop by 8% uh, initially, but uh, over the 10-year time period, we handsomely paid back. We outgrew the industry, top and bottom line. Uh, we grew every year, top and bottom line. And we provided a 300% shareholder return. So I think we've made the case that running your business on values to create value, that these two go very well in, in hand in hand, that focusing on multiple stakeholders and ultimately providing for the benefit of the shareholders also go hand in hand. And increasingly, that story is easier to sell. And we now know that more diverse, gender diverse companies perform better, not surprising, that companies that have a stronger purpose at their core have more engaged employees, not surprising. The companies that take more care of their employees and also on the social side have a more loyal workforce and often also treat their suppliers and partners in the value chain better and have a more resilient relationship, not surprising. We also find that companies that have internalized the carbon challenges think about it try to mitigate these risks, which we know are all coming, have a more resilient operating model and less exposure. Not surprising. So what we're really here saying is, why not invest in the CEOs that understand what these issues are out there and that actively put their business models to the service of solving these issues? Why would you invest in CEOs that minoptically focus on the shareholders often isolate themselves of these little islands of prosperity in the sea of poverty around them and have become oblivious to what is going on in the world. And increasingly it has shown that these CEOs that have this minoptic focus are putting their companies at risk. Look at the Boeings or look at the Wells Fargo's or look at the Volkswagen's or look at the GE's. I've been in their board meetings and it was all about earnings per share and per quarter and how to beat a penny here and a penny there. And we should now, we've come to the point that we need to ask the question, why do we let these people be around? Why do we let these companies be run that way? Versus why should we run the company in a more responsible way? It's time that we put Milton Friedman after 50 years upside down. And interestingly, two-thirds of the questions that came at the shareholder meetings this year in the U.S. were about ESG. And another statistic which I like, that for the first time in the history of mankind, 
more CEOs got fired and a lot do for non-financial reasons than for financial reasons. So for the first time, you see more CEOs leaving because they're underperforming on the E or on the S or on the G. And these numbers, sad as they may be, give me encouragement that at least that there is a movement that uh, that we should understand and try to accelerate. One thing you shouldn't forget, my last point is, that a lot of that pressure for companies to change is actually coming from the employees itself. When Amazon had 8,000 employees threatening to walk out, they became more aggressive on climate change and since then have you know, started to be an active participant. When um, a company wanted to sell mattresses to the border control with Mexico, where parents are separated from their children, the employee said, I don't want to work here if you deliver. Or when a company was asked to have face recognition contracts with the government, the employee said, we don't want that because it's intrusion in your privacy that we cannot live with. So increasingly that pressure, although it comes from society, it is best expressed to the CEOs from their employees and, uh, and from their own children, may I add, but especially their employees. Yeah, no, I agree. I think, I mean, at a certain point, it no longer really makes sense to sort of negatively anchor the question of sustainability around Milton Friedman's claim that the social responsibility of business is to increase profits. Totally. But, but it's sort of interesting. If you were to describe the theory of change when it comes to communicating sort of the tension between short term and long term to a new management team. And pragmatically speaking, in my experience, a management team will sit across a number of investors. And if that management team talks the long term, I've seen this before. In fact, I've probably been guilty of this. The long term is a series of short terms, right? This sort sure. of gl- sure. but, yeah, rebuttal. <laughs> but, but uh, how do you respond to that well, in, in a way convincingly that says that you are well aware of the short term <laughs> pressures, but you are managing for the long term? I have never said in this discussion that we shouldn't perform. I believe if you run your company well, it's like a little bit when we went to school, you know. I always did my homework. I did my different uh, topics. I studied them. And most of the exams I passed and I just moved forward. And ultimately, I got my degree and benefited from that. I didn't, uh, you know, go, uh, you know, six months without studying. And no, we did it consistently. So that performance is always there. And you can see that if a company actually performs consistently in terms of trying to take into account, optimize, I would call, not maximize, the return of all their stakeholders, they also have a higher chance to, over the long term, respond to the needs of the shareholders. So the question here is not shareholder primacy or multi-stakeholder. The question here really is short-term and long-term. And too many CEOs cater to their current shareholder base uh, and don't really work very hard to attract the right long-term shareholders. Over the 10 years in Unilever, I spent a disproportionate amount of time attracting the longer-term shareholders. And whilst it is more work, we saw in our top 10 a double the level of holdings and half the rotation. We saw the same half rotation in our top 100. We could really show that by not having quarterly discussions, we were attracting more of the longer-term shareholders because we had more strategic longer-term discussions. And these longer-term shareholders, sure, they want performance, not on a three-month basis, because they didn't want to hear about Ramadan being a day earlier or or the weather in Europe being bad for our ice cream. They wanted to understand the strategy of what we were doing to ensure that the money that they were investing, often for their pensioners, gave a longer-term return, but also, more importantly, a return that would give these pensioners a world that they would actually be able to live in. And we were increasingly able, although it was not readily available at that time, to link the focus on the social and environmental sides of our business model to actually the value creation of Unilever. And as we were delivering year in, year out, which I insisted on, that every year we would go top line and bottom line. And as we were delivering year in, year out, we built a trust. You know, trust comes on foot and leaves on horseback. So it took us a while, probably three or four years, before that trust actually came from the broader base of the right investor community. So you do need to invest in that. It doesn't come easy. But in essence, there is a big enough group of investors that does care. Right now, they can only assess under the current accounting about 15% of the, uh, the value of a company with the data that is published. 
It used to be about 85% 50, 60 years ago when the bulk of the value of a company was reflected in its fixed assets and some other minor things. Now, with the move, with the technology we've seen, the service economy and all the other things, only 15%. No wonder that you see these high fluctuations and volatilities in the share prices because 85% is intangible and they cannot really read it. But now we have the opportunities to measure that. We can measure diversity. We can measure culture. We can measure the effects of good or bad governance. We can look at the quality of boards. And good investors have always been interested in that, but increasingly they have these tools. So that's why it's not surprising that you now see the ESG investing growing so fast. Just in the last quarter alone, it attracted $70 billion of investments. Just on energy, ESG investing in energy uh, impact, if you want to investing in that area, we are passing the one trillion. We see the green bond market exploding and uh, 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 for good reasons. So I think investors are rapidly changing from not seeing this as a risk uh, screening, like a negative screening, if you want to, but as a, uh, a positive screening towards opportunity. So for the companies now, they don't really have that challenge that I had to deal with, where there were a lot of skeptics and cynics and we needed to build that confidence over time. But they actually have increasingly the hard facts that, that going in this direction makes, makes sense. And let me end by saying one argument which I often hear, which actually is a fallacy, but let's take this argument as it is that the fiduciary duties would be towards maximizing shareholder return. I deliberately say it's a fallacy because I don't think if you really interpret any code, like in the UK, uh, the, uh, uh, the Company Act uh, Code 172A, it would talk about multi -sta multiple stakeholders. But if you would really believe in this concept of maximizing the shareholder value and that the role of the board is to ensure that, you still have to ask the question short-term and long-term because we know that if you do that short-term, it's very easy to do, but you might undermine the future of the company longer-term. So if you buy into corporate governance being the responsibility of a longer-term existence of a company and the long-term maximization of your shareholders, then it automatically leads you to running this company in an environmentally and socially responsible way. So even if you believe in maximizing the shareholder value, you have to buy into the fact now that the, the facts are overwhelming, that that is that ESG gets you there and non-ESG puts that at risk. So that's where we are. I think that's where more companies should move. And it requires ultimately the courage of the CEOs and the boards to do that. The reality is that most CEOs will say that the pressure comes from their boards most of these boards are made up of people that lived in a different time period when Milton Friedman probably wrote its papers. And uh, recent studies have shown that very few boards, a few percent, only have climate-competent people. And actually, heads of sustainability committees on boards, only 17% would be qualified to be on these committees. Now, you wouldn't do that with an audit committee. So it is time that we also adapt these boards so that they understand the importance of pivoting these business models and give the support to the CEOs, or if you want to hire the right CEOs that are able to make these transitions. Yeah, I had this great conversation about this with Alex Edmonds, the author of Grow the Pie, which is a great book that I'd recommend. But I'm wondering to this point, I mean, do you think the tension between the purpose movement, call it, and the shareholder movement is to some degree irreconcilable? or if they can coexist. And if they can coexist, you know, does it mean that there has to be some degree of primacy? Is there sort of a first among equals, you know, within this stakeholder model? Well, unlike the BRT statement, I personally don't believe that is a, uh, a first amongst equals. I mean, I believe in that's a means to an end. Only by focusing responsibly on the other stakeholders will the shareholder um, benefit and will you maximize shareholder return? The tension is not between shareholder return and focusing on the other stakeholders. The tension, as I said, is more between people who want short-term returns and people who want to maximize the longer-term returns. And there I don't have an argument. If there are speculators around, and unfortunately we have put a lot of money 
into the uh, the global economy far more than the real economy needs, and that money is chasing returns. Unfortunately, uh, the future is more uncertain than volatile, so these future cash flows are discounted too much. So we have pushed the financial market for a big part to the shorter term. But we can also show with hard data that ultimately that pressure on the shorter term, as I said, is killing companies, is uh, killing shareholder value. Uh, look at um, two industries, uh, airlines and, and fossil fuel industry. Uh, 95% of their uh, earnings have been given back to CEOs and shareholders. In fact, they have done $14 trillion of share buybacks over the last 10 years. And these are the companies now that are in, in deep trouble. The, the the market valuation, even of a company like Exxon, which is a grossly irresponsible company when it gets to dealing with climate change, uh, the market cap has fallen below some of the new uh, new companies that are in green energy. You look at the car industry, how a newcomer like Tesla has a market cap now that far exceeds the others combined because, frankly, they had their heads in the sand for too long, long period of time. So if you believe in the long-term maximization of shareholders, I think there is a lot of argument to say that you need to have a business model that also takes care of your employees who ultimately create that value, have good relationships with your suppliers, ensure that your communities in which you work function, and ensure that you are not creating a world that is worse and that uh, where you discard the externalities, but where you try to make them uh, at least less bad or increasingly uh, positive. And companies that understand that are simply companies that are better run in general. I know there are exceptions, but I'm talking here about the broad numbers. So the conflict is not between shareholder maximization and multi-stakeholder focus. The, con- the conflict really is between running your business for the long term and the short term. You know, Even when um, Kraft Heinz came in with a 17% higher bid on a short-term basis for Unilever, which was purely financial manipulation and leveraging it up seven times and, and cutting costs to starve the future, which has subsequently been proven with their share price going down, Warren Buffett writing off his biggest write-off, the company uh, being, uh, you know, called out for uh, accounting scandals and uh, and all the other things, whilst Unilever share price has continued to grow. Um, there were some investors there that said, I need to take the 17% because I'm getting rewarded on a quarterly performance in my portfolio. So that's that. It's not really that they want to do the right thing. They knew it was the wrong thing, but they said my incentive systems are are, are driving me to this behavior. And, uh, and that was fortunately not a big enough group of investors, but it could be big enough to to spoil it for some companies that are being attacked increasingly by these corporate raiders or by these people that for selfish, selfless, uh, selfish purposes pursue the short-term maximization route. So, um, so, so you know, a long answer to, to the question. Uh, I, I believe that um, in order to move these markets to the longer term, uh, which overwhelmingly would create more value over the longer term, also more inclusive value, we need to look at how we change the financial system, starting by the asset owners and then the asset managers, and ultimately also work with corporate boards uh, to ensure that the incentive systems and and all things that come with it are aligned. I was going to ask, given your participation across boards, uh, your work at Imagine, it just the sum of all your experience, how optimistic are you in a post-pandemic world that that pressure from capital markets to drive unsustainable levels of profitability returns, which means not giving companies latitude to reinvest back into reducing environmental footprints or, or, or social impacts or maybe more resilient long-term supply chains? Yeah, especially if most of the value in any company is created four or five years out. So that's yeah. why this is absolutely important. So um, I'd say it's too late to be a pessimist, but so I rest a prisoner of hope, if I call it that way. I believe that if we uh, change our accounting system and measure what we treasure uh, and work with governments who put the right frameworks in place, then we have a shot. If you ask me, will it only come from the financial market? By itself, I don't think we have seen enough of the leadership and the critical mass at scale. Sure, they're celebrating some announcements, they're making some movements, but broadly that, that deeper leadership that is needed is unfortunately not in abundant supply there. So if we create, uh, if we change these framework conditions, I believe we can get there by all means. And, uh, and we're seeing certainly an acceleration in that direction 
uh, which shows that uh, that we want that. Um, and we also see some governments like the European Green Deal or uh, China now making a commitment of being carbon zero by 2060. We see some clear signals now also on the regulatory environment. So if we get a chance of of regime in the U.S., which still is a very important uh, country to influence that debate and pull others in at the global level. If we start to accelerate the work that the IFRS and GRI and others have been doing and increasingly do together, and um, if we get governments to accelerate the um, the changes in, in the right levels of corporate governance and, and uh, incentive systems, I think we have a good shot of getting there. Mm. There's no reason why in the next uh, 15 years, 10, 15 years, we cannot implement these uh, sustainable development goals we've set. We, there's no reason why we also collectively cannot stay below the one and a half degrees if we want to uh, want to achieve that. Uh, ultimately, it boils down to leadership and, and willpower, not anymore to uh, technology or lack of knowledge or, you know, never ever have we been so forewarned about what is going to happen and and frankly, never ever have we been so forearmed with tools to do something about that. So now we need to muster that collective willpower. Yeah. You've mentioned commitments a couple of times, and I'm actually kind of a fanatic about them in terms of what I've studied, yeah. written about them before. I think they are incredibly important. Skeptics would say they don't necessarily matter, but I would sort of reply that if they didn't, then everyone would do them or no one would do them. And we do this in a financial lens through, you know, earnings or, you know, or cash flow guidance. And so the question is, which commitments matter and how do you sort of refine that process of setting those forward-looking commitments around, you know, it might be carbon yeah. neutrality, it might be social commitments. And I think from a company context, I also tend to think of like, how do you sort of set them in terms of stretch goals or goals? You know, how do you calibrate them in terms of ambitiousness? I've had a great conversation and I do credit, by the way, Unilever for really driving a lot of my thinking around this, but I had a recent conversation and a podcast with Pia Heddenkamp Cook at Inca Ikea, and they're going through the same process too. And the idea was that you are consistent, ambitious, and transparent, and if you miss the targets, but you still are those three things, the markets or investors, et cetera, are forgiving, right? But if you don't have those, then it sort of engenders a lot of skepticism and, and potentially accusations of greenwashing. So I could not agree more um, with that, uh, Jason. Let me just expand it on a little bit. You know, you don't marry your wife first and then say, do you want to marry me? You first make a commitment that you want to marry each other and then you marry I run a, I used to run a lot of marathons and you first tell your friends you're going to run a marathon <laughs> so that they support you. You're not saying afterwards I ran a marathon. So it's quite normal that companies make commitments and increasingly they make commitments at scale and increasingly they actually make commitments together because they also understand that individually they can only do so much. So you see these joint commitments coming in now that really drive the uh, collective action further. This is where Imagine is focused on. So what I did in Unilever when we started the journey and our Unilever Sustainable Living Plan had a very simple objective to decouple our growth from environmental impact because I could see definitely the planetary boundary limitations and to increase the social impact. Many companies did not really want to talk social Many felt that outsourcing your value chain also meant outsourcing your responsibility, and I didn't think so. So the Unilever Sustainable Living Plan was quite unique, that it was all encompassing, that it was our business model, so it became our strategy. We incorporated that in all countries, all brands. But more importantly, we took the responsibility for our impact on the total value chain. So we set 50 targets, and people said, that's a lot, and if you miss some, are you going to get fired? And you know, there might be 10-year targets. You're not there after 10 years, on which I proved them wrong. But but um, I said, no, what uh, the, these, the targets might not all be right, but it's by the transparency of these targets that you create trust. And we did something that I didn't know at that time, but that was very beneficial. And I would recommend to anybody, we put these 50 targets out there, and they were uncomfortable, just as our overall objective of decoupling playing and reaching a billion people, improving their health and well-being, were uncomfortable targets. Uh, we didn't know how to get totally out of fossil fuel. We made targets to greening our uh, own electricity use and all that. We didn't know how to do it. 
and um, so the first thing is feel uncomfortable and set targets that are bigger than you than you currently know how to achieve because that's sort of what we need to move these boundaries and not stay into incrementalism but get to the step changes that really make you successful and differentiated and actually move move the things forward so by making putting 50 targets out there we said we don't have all the answers and we can't do it alone and I heard from so many people afterwards that made you guys human. And now that made us want to work with you. So we attracted quite a lot of people that wanted to be part of these challenges that we put out there to help us find these solutions. And what we found, for example, was I've issued twice a human rights report. And I regret that not many companies have actually followed in our footsteps. And in these human rights reports, which are online and available, we say what we do well, but we also spend actually more time on where the challenges are. People thought we would be taken to the cleaners. Instead, what happened was, even with the newspapers, well, if Unilever has these challenges, can you imagine what other companies have to deal with. And it's so courageous that they put them out there because then we can focus on trying to find the solutions. And the Modern Day Slavery Act, the Foreign Corruption Practice Act in the UK, were results of us actually actively pushing based on some of these data and and transparencies that we gave. So putting these data out there, making them very ambitious, um, but achievable still, um, is the right thing to do. You know, we had reached 50 million people with uh, hand washing when I joined Unilever after a 120-year history. And I put a target out there of 1 billion. And after 10 years, I failed miserably because I only, with the company and heroic efforts of all of our people, achieved 870 million. So I fell short of the 1 billion. It took us 120 years to reach the small number of 50 million. It took us 10 years to move from 50 million to 870 million. You think that that was because we had no ambition or you think it was because we set the billion target? Of course, nobody attacked us that we missed it by 130 million. Which, by the way, my success on our Ellen Job has, has more than uh, Brits that. But it made us do 10 times more in 10 years than what we had done. In fact, 80 times more in 10 years than what we had done in uh, in the previous 120 years. So setting these targets builds trust, builds transparency, creates these partnerships. And then um, consistency is um, consistency in reporting, yes, considering and measuring, yes. But these targets are temporary because the need of society changes. In fact, we were, I think, early by including social targets, we, we created uh, a, a global effort to measure fair and living wages and set standards. We um, worked on diversity before many others. Uh, we I, I'm very big on disability, so we've worked very hard on, on total inclusion. But, but society changes, and as society changes, some of the needs change, and you need to adapt. All of a sudden, plastic becomes a, a huge issue, or uh, the racial dimension things that we might have had in the past but clearly didn't make enough progress on that all of a sudden come to the foreground. So I also would believe that these targets have to be flexible enough to um, to be adapted as the needs of societies change. And then transparency for sure. We had them always audited by PwC and we always uh, once a year publicly invited everybody to go through that. And it wasn't always easy, and we probably hit 80% of the targets, and the discussion was always on the 20%, and it felt sometimes frustrating, and we had to bite our lips. But then it was probably the best advice we got to make the total thing more robust by attacking some of these topper things. And what we discovered was that, yeah, the low-hanging fruits, uh, the first few years were easier, but it became progressively more difficult because we needed more transformative changes to read some of the things. To get palm oil to be totally sustainable from Malaysia and Indonesia, you need governments, you need the whole industry, you need monitoring systems, you need international financing. These are big systems changes that are needed that you not, cannot necessarily do alone. To green your value chain, we ended up buying solar power to uh, have offsets, but offsets long-term are not the solution either. But you know, to really green your grid, or your electricity system is sometimes not that easy. Are you going to stop selling 
your businesses in some countries where you plan to only get energy from coal. No, you know, but you're going to work very hard on uh, with the governments to transition them out of coal. But it takes time. So these broader partnerships at industry level or sometimes with governments to take these frameworks are probably right now the biggest stumble blocks. And so, so good companies are now separated from the average companies, not by just the ESG, the implement are becoming a little bit more sustainable, but the good companies actually make their whole business model net positive. Earth Overshoot Day was August 22nd this year, which means that now, despite even COVID, we are using 60% more resources than this planet can replenish. So we're stealing from future generations. I don't want to be part of that. So good companies understand that they need to be regenerative, and they also understand that they need to be an active part of these more transformative changes that need to happen in society beyond the interest of your own company. It's great if you're a digital company and, we, and you claim for the sustainable development goals, we need more broadband. Or if you're in the lightning business, we need LED lighting. But the real companies that are going to be respected and be around and, and get that credibility are the ones that not only do that, but ultimately work on the longer term changes that need to happen to make this world function for everybody. Yeah, I was going to ask, I mean, the, the SDGs have clearly been picked up, you know, well beyond you know, their national intentions. But I do wonder how businesses themselves can embrace or sort of reconcile with the activism of Extinction yeah. Rebellion, Greta Thunberg, you know, etc. Well, I was one of the first CEOs at that time that supported with my tweets uh, Extinction Rebellion. I've supported uh, Greta many times. doesn't mean I support everything they do hmm. or if they go beyond the law or violence. I, I don't support that. But some of these objectives, first of all, they're civil society. They didn't see government moving fast enough. Thanks to Extinction Rebellion, Theresa May passed a law in the UK to go to a commitment to net zero by 2050. The words and actions don't fully match yet. Now Boris has made other commitments, so we need to hold them to account. But we have to give these people credit that they created a higher level of awareness and a higher level of, of consciousness and, uh, and uh, ambition around climate change, and that's perfectly okay. And this is uh, not to forget that 30% of the world population, 50% of the world population is below 30 years old. And uh, so for them to make the noise and say, we have enough of this, we want you to start moving in a direction that also some of that future is reserved for us, I find that quite normal. Some of the tactics I would deplore, but the the fact that uh, these action groups exist is very healthy. Uh, when I was chairing the food um, task force for the G20, the food security task force, um, I was asked to only put a group of businesses together and lead that. I said, I cannot do that. I put the World Food Program in, who today got the, the, the Nobel Prize that you probably have picked up already. Uh, I put uh, Oxfam in, Barbara Stocking at that time. She brought issues in there of uh, biofuels and women's rights and, and our, our absence of it. And because we put all these stakeholders in there, sure, business was taken out of their comfort zone. And sure, they were challenged more. But the end result that we came up with and the recommendations were far more robust. They are as valid today as they were then. Unfortunately, we've seen few governments pick up on you know, biodiversity restoration or natural capital. And we've missed uh, an opportunity, but let's use this crisis to to come back to that. Um, Mark Mullet Brown, uh, when I was, uh, I, I had the pleasure to be part of the, the 27, uh, what was called at that time, imminent people developing the sustainable development goal. And I was the only representative of the business community. But then I discovered how difficult it is to get 17 goals and 169 targets into companies. <laughs> and, uh, you know, an average CEO doesn't have that uh, retention possibility. So we created this commission of business and sustainable development. Mark Mullet Brown, a very uh, uh, notable person and, and respected person, was chairing it. And we found an opportunity of $12 trillion and, and job creation, obviously, that uh, $380 million that we need more than ever now. So this is probably one of the biggest business agendas. And uh, by publishing that report, we reached about um, 1,800 CEOs. Um, that uh, need to understand the SDGs and the business opportunities inherent in that. Uh, now, as uh, the, the chair for the Secretary General of the Global Compact, I would say the 14,000 companies that are there all understand that. And then we would encourage board sessions 
so that the board is behind you, that they understand these sustainable development goals. And then hopefully you can set targets, specific targets relevant to your business. You don't have to hit all these 17 goals, 169 targets, but there must be some relevant to your businesses. And then you internalize it in your company and start working with your sector peers and your value chains to develop the roadmap. And, and when you do that, you will discover not only is your business model becoming more robust and resilient, but you can also then move to the next step, which is active advocacy and uh, to ensure that we have the right policies and, and regulatory positions. And if you're smart enough still for companies, you pull all of that together in these big transformative partnerships. And it's uh, over and over is proven that if you do that thoughtfully over a certain period of time, there's an enormous value creation you can unlock. I want to change lanes a little bit because having met and seen all types of investors over your time, particularly Unilever, I'm wondering what critique, if you could take a constructively critical view of the finance sector, what critique could you lend? What do investors need to do more of? What do, quote, sustainable investors get wrong or misunderstand about how corporates themselves approach sustainability? Well, I think for too long, the financial market has been too detached from the real economy and has shown a lower level of interest to be part of the solution. Uh, I too often heard my asset managers are not interested in what you're telling me or uh, um, you need to show me that you can get better returns. But if we don't get the financial market actively behind this um, this uh, chains of global economy that is needed, if we don't get the funds to stream in the direction of the sustainable development goals, then obviously it becomes all the more difficult. Often I heard critique from the financial market that I don't have the data to judge and, and uh, to compare. But I've never seen really significant initiatives, bar a few exceptions, from the financial market to sit together and to get that. Uh, often the financial market agrees with the dysfunctional behavior that comes with short-termism, but it hasn't been the financial market at scale that went together to attack that. Sure, we've seen in, in individual initiatives, we have now some efforts that are taking a little bit more root but it was important that you get leadership from that sector as much as anywhere else. And because they operate under a, a lower trust level from some, for some you know, historical reasons that we need to accept, it is even more important that people speak up. If you put the FEMGAS, State Streets, Fidelities, BlackRocks together, you probably get 15, 20% of the capital of any, any uh, company. And they can truly drive these changes. <clears throat> and we've not seen that happening at that scale. But now the divestiture movement, for example, for carbon is already $14 trillion. But it hasn't come from the heart of these fund managers. So my first critique is really is start to own it. And next to the declarations you now make, also become more actively involved in driving it. You know, BlackRock has made great commitments. Larry writes his letters. We now see, for example... Uh, a commitment on on climate step, stepping up and what they expect, but then you see how many times they vote. Uh, they are one of the lowest in terms of voting for these climate resolutions compared to any other shareholder base. That is something that I think the public at large has a hard time understanding. And increasingly, we want to have our money invested by managers that also are aligned with our values. So that would be my first broad point, enough said about that. My second one would be um, of the financial community is to really um, get a higher awareness of the possibilities of these sustainable development goals. In each of these goals, um, there are opportunities to redesign our global economies that give us uh, trillions of dollars of benefit (coughs) and trillions of dollars of negative externalities that can be avoided. But it requires patient capital. You know, it's a little cynical that the most urgent problems in the world now require the most patient capital to deal with. But that is a high return. So be more creative of providing the products that allow us to get there. You know, we're now seeing the initial stages of ESG investing taking off, and there's probably a lot of work to be done still around the definitions of the, um, you know, the green bond market and, and uh, impact investing. You know, be pioneers on that and start to actively push it. I always have a hard time understanding some of these people that say, uh, you know, 
that uh, yeah now we have 30% of our funds in ESG or uh, 50% is impact what's the rest then <laughs> you know why should that be 100% and why should you actively drive that UBS is now the first bank that says it's 100% I have to understand what that means though but my second point to them is why don't you make the switch and move and move at scale and make that the norm whilst for too many it still is the exception got it so last question for the students that make up a good part of the audience of this podcast, I'm often asked what advice I would give them. And I love for the last question to turn that around and ask the guests what advice you would give them for those students pursuing some path in sustainability, whether it's on the corporate policy or finance side. So I'm wondering, Paul, what's helped guide you or inspire your learning over the years, particularly in this area? Well, let me first say that this is a wonderful time to be a student and it's a wonderful time to think about sustainability. As I said, 50% is below 30 years old. It is your future. You are more creative. You care more about these issues. You're more purpose-driven. You understand technology. You know what networking is. You actually have all the tools. So not only should you demand a seat at the table, you actually should demand the table. And I've seen many creative solutions coming from uh, the young. Yesterday evening, I was with the Impact Hub the, uh, the uh, young uh, startups and the solutions that are coming out there, I wish that bigger companies would um, understand those and and, uh, and be aware of those and put them into their value chains because they would be so much more the better for it. So I think the future is without any doubt yours for many reasons. The advice I would give is, is um, find a sweet spot where what you're good at, what the world needs, and, um, and um, what... Um, what you like uh, and in that sweet spot you'll have a great career and a great performance if you can marry those three things you're you're on the wave so to speak um, if you look for companies be sure you look for companies where your personal values are aligned with the company's values because again then you don't need to be someone else and it provides you for an environment where you can develop yourself to your fullest potential and obviously also have a higher level of satisfaction. As you pursue your careers, uh, you know, follow your purpose with passion. And uh, and my final point would be to you is keep a positive attitude. Uh, it's very clear that a lot of things need to change. We're on the curve of a big revolution where we have to decarbonize the global economy, move it to a circular or regenerative model, make it more inclusive. Um uh, move the financial markets to the longer term. These are major systems changes that really uh, we've never dealt with of a magnitude that will redefine capitalism we've never seen. And uh, the road to change is not going to be easy. There are a lot of cynics and skeptics, some self-interest. Uh, but it's like climbing a mountain. You need sometimes a bump to rest or you need to go down to acclimatize before you go up again. So uh, continuously keep a positive attitude would be my advice. It reminds me as a final comment on the story that my father always used to tell us of the story of the egg, the coffee bean and the carrot. They all were facing boiling water and the egg was soft and uh, mushy and went into boiling water and became hard and stubborn. The carrot was actually very hard and went into the boiling water and became soft and mushy. But when the coffee bean went into the water, it changed the color of the water around it, but it stayed a coffee bean. So as you pursue your careers and go into life and embrace these enormous uh, opportunities that we have, become the coffee bean. That would be my best advice I can give you. That That's fantastic. I have never heard that story before, but I'm going to retell it uh, to my two and a half year old son as well. I really, is <laughs> a great, great words to end on. Uh, look, so it's been fascinating to discuss what the implications of the pandemic for businesses are, how it's forcing a rethink of the traditional shareholder centric model and why strong leadership is absolutely vital, not only in steering through this crisis, but long term sustainability issues like climate change and global inequality. So I'd really like to thank you for your time and thoughts. I'm Jason Mitchell, co-head of Responsible Investment at Man Group, here today with Paul Pullman, co-founder and chair of Imagine and former CEO of Unilever. Many thanks for joining us on A Sustainable Future, and I hope you'll join us on our next podcast episode. Thanks so much, Paul. I appreciate it. Thank you, Jason. Enjoyed it. Thank you. I'm Jason Mitchell. Thanks for joining us. Special thanks to our guests and, of course, everyone that helped produce this show. To check out more episodes of this podcast, 
please visit us at man.com forward slash ri dash podcast or look for us on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, and Podbean. And last, this podcast is an open educational resource. It's meant to be shared. And if you enjoy it, please take a second to review it on iTunes. I'm also really interested in your views, ideas, and opinions. So feel free to drop me a line at jason.mitchell at man.com.